millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to the new edition of TLS Voices. My name is Stig Abel, editor of the Times Literary Supplement. I'm joined as ever by the commissioning editor and the podcast unchallenged pronunciation guru, Thea Lenadutsi. Thea, you've just been skiing, which is a dreadfully middle-class way of getting cold and showing off. And you've got five seconds to bore on about it if you'd like to. I can't really... I, can't really... I, couldn't, I couldn't possibly, except to say that if it's supposed to be about showing off, I'm sure I was doing something wrong. Uh, also, as an Italian, it's not quite as bad. If you're, you're in Italy, you grew up in Italy, yes. skiing is not a kind of middle-class No, I also thing. grew up basically on the Swiss border, so... Skiing's acceptable. Yes. It's not showing off. No. And was it fun? It was. It's amazing how much one forgets. I had, it had been 15 years since I'd last attempted to and, ski. But you did it successfully. My limbs were quite uncontrollable. But you didn't, you didn't plummet off anything? <laughs> I didn't plummet off anything. I'm here to tell the tale. There we go. The, the boring tale. Yeah, well, that's what I say. Skiing is boring, but I think if you're Italian, you have, an, you have an excuse. Before we get to the show, I want to tell you where you can get cheap subscriptions to the TLS. Simply Google TLS subscriptions, click and type POD1 in the offer code tab. You can get six issues for just £6. So just Google TLS subscriptions and type POD1 in the offer code bit and you'll get that deal. Coming up on the programme today, 2017 is the bicentennial of Jane Austen's death. What does she mean in the modern world exactly? We have a cover piece by Austen expert and roller derby enthusiast Devony Lucer, whose roller derby name is the unimprovable stone-cold Jane Austen. I'm mildly terrified to say she'll be joining us shortly. Uh, last year, the most recommended book in the TLS Books of the Year was the final volume of letters by Samuel Beckett. David Wheatley has reviewed them and will talk to us about the end of this iconic literary life. Finally, we shall reflect on a memoir by superstar American editor Robert Gottlieb, who ran two publishing houses, Simon & Schuster and Alfred A. Knopf, as well as The New Yorker. J. Michael Lennon, the Norman Mailer literary executor, has reviewed it and will be on the line. It is a truth universally acknowledged that the opening line of Pride and Prejudice must be referenced at the beginning of any item about its author, Jane Austen. This year, the 200th anniversary of her death, you're likely to see Austen everywhere, peeking out demurely from her portrait in reissued books and new critical works, even endorsing a brand of gin, which calls her quite a naughty girl who liked her young men and liked her gin. Uh, we seem to feel a natural affinity with this writer for unclear reasons. It's perhaps because we long for a world which, however realist, always seems to end in harmony, the reassuring conclusion of concord and marriage. 
Martin Amis once brilliantly noticed, by the way, that the particular genius of Jane Austen was to turn us all into Mrs. Bennets. We lust after a happy ending with a whale-heeled suitor, no less hysterically than that woman who we've been invited to laugh at throughout. Devony Lucer, stone-cold Jane Austen, if I might be so bold, has reviewed a new issue of Mansfield Park and a critical work entitled Jane Austen, The Secret Radical by Helena Kelly. She joins Thea and me now. Devony, what's the current trend for regarding Austen? I presume this sort of peaks and troughs. Is she a dutiful social historical novelist or is she, as this new book suggests, a secret radical? What's the sort of trend around Jane Austen at the moment? Well, I think the, the trend goes in all directions, which is absolutely what her popular and scholarly history would suggest. The trend seems to be now to find her a lot more fun and a lot more, uh, you know, what my students would call relatable, right? That she's a lot more of an everyday gal. I think, in the current moment, at least in her popular history than she's been in the past. And, and why is that? Did, what, what, what do you think we're looking for with her? Is it because there's sort of happy endings? Is it because there's strong female characters and in some senses she's a little bit more modern than what one might otherwise think? Well, you know, I heard you suggested beginning along with Martin Amos that you think she might be a kind of escapist author or a romantic uh, fantasy author. And I see her more as a social critic uh, along with the, the books and review. I think everyone always wants to know what Jane Austen would think of such and such. But the only thing that an answer to that question ever tells us, I believe, is, is what the person answering it most appreciates about Jane Austen. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, what I most appreciate about her is her feminist social criticism, her satire and, and, and her humor. But the fact that one can go to her novels and find all of these things and satisfy all of these audiences is what I think is remarkable about her. And the, uh, the, the radical badge, that's nothing new, is it? I mean, you mentioned, among others from previous generations, that the suffragettes uh, were Janeite kind of banner wavers. Yes, uh, this idea that Austin has been used for progressive politics has been with us for more than a century. And I love the fact that the suffragists marched through the streets of London in 1908 with this Jane Austen banner and other women writers' names on banners, but that she could be rallied for a particular political cause a hundred years after she died is, I think, fantastic. And it shows us that the, the Twitter wars over putting her on currency are not a, a new fact. What were the Twitter wars around? I, I, I vaguely remember this. That was, was she not included originally on a piece of currency and then the argument was that she should be? Well, th- I'm, not, I'm talking about the very recent one with mm. uh, Christina Corral de Perez yeah. and the, uh, yes, there was a movement to get another woman on English currency, and Corral de Perez was one of the major activists. And when it was named that Jane Austen would be put on, it was the tenor, ultimately, that she'll be on next year or this year, right? There was a series of death threats, uh, rape threats, and I think two people ultimately were uh, convicted. And I, I don't know if they plea bargained out. I'm not sure. You'd have to look back at the record. But the, uh, there was a court case over their Twitter threats to Corral de Perez. I, I, do, I, do, I do remember that. But I wonder whether that was that so much about Jane Austen as about men with crazy ideas that you can't have women on 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 currency because uh, i'm kind of interested because what were her revolutionary ideas because you say that she's the, the suffragettes used her you quote william dean howells as saying she was in her way asserting the rights of man as unmistakably as the french revolutionists and i've read all of austin i think and i was scratching my head a bit where did these revolutionary ideas appear in her work 
Well, I think they're much more having to do with gender than with class. And so picking and choosing when we use the term progressive to refer to Austin's fiction. And I think that's okay. So I think, for instance, the comments that she makes on women being governesses uh, that she has in Jane Fairfax's mouth in Emma are seen as remarkable, right? She has Jane Austen refer to, uh, I'm sorry, Jane Fairfax refers to governesses as the sale of uh, human intellect, maybe not human flesh, she says but human intellect. And I, I think that's a really moving and insight, insightful moment to, to see the ways in which educated women's roles were limited and the ways in which they were uh, treated like, uh, you know, I think she's, she's likening it to slavery, which I know is controversial, but interesting, and I think progressive. It, it strikes me as quite an important line that you quote from Claudia L. Johnson and her work on Austen. And the line says basically that, that Austen de-polemicised but did not depoliticize her, her work. That strikes me as an important distinction. I think presumably that, that's part of what allows us to, to continue to engage with her and, and, and it doesn't sort of make the text too much of its time. It keeps it relevant. It allows the reader space to think for themselves. Absolutely. And, you know, I I love Claudia Johnson's work. And for my money, the Jane Austen Women Politics in the novel that I referenced in the review is still the best study making sense of Austen's political investments in the fiction as best we can make them out. Uh, And I really like the idea that she is put forward as someone who has, of course, political investments, but is not making people angry. She's bringing them along by degrees. And I, you know, I would call that a more liberal position, uh, a within the institution position for change, not a radical or revolutionary position. To me, that speaks most to what I see going on in her novels and in the materials we have surviving about her life. Uh, why, why do you think she, this, the survival of Jane Austen, I think is very interesting and will be confronted by over this, this year. <clears throat> why do we still feel proximity to her in a way no one does feel close to Walter Scott, for example? Uh, is that because <laughs> the quality of the writing or, or, you know, for some reason, modern adaptations? I mean, in this country, there is a sort of iconic BBC adaptation of... Pride and Prejudice, which had Colin Firth as Mr. Darcy emerging half naked from a lake, which kind of set the hearts a flutter a bit. And yes, we know that one over here in the States, too. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> so, so does, do, 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 and there was uh, Emma was obviously reimagined in Clueless, um, and the Alicia Silverson movie. Have modern adaptations had a part to play into making her relatable, as you say your students would call her? Absolutely. And, you know, I think part of the reason this is on my mind so closely is I've, I've just finished a book called The Making of Jane Austen, which will be out in June from Johns Hopkins University Press, if you let me get that yeah, well done. plug in. Uh, but it, it, looks at, it looks at her reputation up to 1975. And what I've found looking through book illustration, stage adaptation, uh, the way she's used in politics and schools, is that Jane Austen in each generation has made the leap to whatever the new media is in that day. And I think as long as that keeps happening for her, she will continue to travel with us. And, you know, Sir Walter Scott uh, ultimately uh, didn't. <laughs> you know, we, You've got that fantastic um, monument up in Edinburgh and no one seems to read his novels anymore. But I, I think when Austin makes these leaps into these new media, she's she's speaking to audiences that are popular and scholarly with equal verve. And that's a very unusual thing. But um, how, how worried do you think we should be or should we not be about these multimedia distortions of, of Jane Austen and Jane Austen's work? You know, these portrayals of her in, uh, as you say, as, as a flirty boozer. OK, I can tell you I am zero worried about the flirt 
Bernie Boozer and what that's going to do to her long-term possibilities for continued positive reception. You know, I think in Austin's case, she legitimately started as popular before scholarly, although we don't often think of that. Uh, and do you, ex- terms. do you extend that to, because, you know, we talked about Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, and it, I, it must be odd that, that, that I'm now speaking to someone else who's seen Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, and we'll get your reaction on that. But does it matter that you say that there's a porn version of Jane Austen or there's a zombie version of Jane Austen? <laughs> Do you not feel protective in any way, or is that just, you know, let a thousand flowers bloom, I suppose? You know, I think I used to feel more protective, but I've increasingly come out of the question that why Jane Austen is the wrong way for us to pose it. Who's Jane Austen is the better way to pose it. And if all we have left are the porn Jane Austen people for her popular reputation, yes, that worries me. <laughs> but, I hate to be a killjoy, but yeah. we should... <laughs> We should probably talk about Mansfield Park. Yeah. <laughs> you don't sound too excited. Well, I don't mind Mansfield Park. Uh, but yeah, go on, go on. Yeah, quite right, go on. Well, we were going... In, in your piece, you mentioned the debate surrounding the, the meaning, I suppose, of Mansfield Park, what it was getting at. So I wonder if you could tell us a bit about about that. Yes. Well, Mansfield Park has been a real flashpoint, as I put it in the review, for conversations about slavery and colonialism in Austin, and I think more widely in the 18th and 19th centuries. And, you know, I think there are many things in the novel that suggest that's a, a very good way in. And the name Mansfield itself, whether it's connected directly, uh, Deidre Lynch calls a Mansfield name-checked in Mansfield Park's title to Lord Mansfield, who's famous for his decision that is said by some to have ended slavery in England in 1772. Uh, the legal scholars may differ <laughs> over Nor- how to interpret that. Norris uh, is there as well, the, the other yes, check. Yes, of course. These are important references, and I don't find them accidental. It seems to me that it's one of the many things that the novel is concerned about and invested in, not a, a kind of one-to-one correspondence. You know, I, I don't think the book's secrets are revealed by figuring out that there are these references to slavery, and then we can stop there and say, ha, mm. And there's, there's another debate which I find quite interesting, actually. It's about the stuff of Fanny Price herself, whether she's an ironic figure or a genuine one. You know, she's a sort of, she's she's famed for saying no to things and she doesn't have an appetite. And someone someone's described her as an archetypal romantic monster. Do, do you think she is an ironic figure, a, a kind of a, a vehicle? Yeah, I, I have to say she's a difficult character for me in that she's probably my least favourite among Austen's heroines. So I'm not the best sympathetic critic, perhaps, on her. There's a, a great line from David Lodge's Changing Places where he, he talks about the students going around with signs that say Fanny Price is a fink. <laughs> and, you know, I, to, to me, that's uh, that's highly amusing and I don't take that as insulting. Uh, but I don't I don't find her ironic, I guess, in that way. It's interesting, actually, because we've got a piece, um, one of our 20 questions on the website now, I don't if you've seen it but it's with uh, Benjamin Markovitz and he he says that Fanny Price is his favorite fictional character of all time so it just goes to really? show how yeah, yeah. go ahead so there, there's a long history to that too this goes back to the mid 19th century when for many people Mansfield Park and especially it seems to have been men of a certain class uh, not to not to impute anyone uh, but to, who found Mansfield Park to be their their most favorite of, oh. of, of Austin's text well, long history of this well then we'd have to leave it there but uh, in fact let's end on me asking that unprofessional question as an Austin scholar, what is your favourite um, Austin novel? What are you going to sh- shock us with? What's very funny is this is the exact conversation uh, I had with my husband when I first met him, and he didn't like my answer, uh, impressed me on it. <laughs> so my answer at the time I met him was Northanger Abbey, which I do find very funny. But in terms of the one that I enjoy rereading most, it would definitely be Pride and Prejudice. Yeah. And I'm totally fine with that being the cliched answer. <laughs> yeah, me too. I, I, mean, I enjoyed Northanger Abbey, and I think it is, it is interesting and, and fun. But uh, I think I reread Pride and Prejudice 
this about every 18 months just um, and it's kind of naff and I know I'm being naff <laughs> as I'm doing it but I do do it you know what we're in good company and that's okay yeah exactly Devin. thank you very yeah, yeah, much we can read Bride and Prejudice it's not a shame. yeah this is catharsic <laughs> Devin, thank you so much for joining us and thank you so much for a, such a wonderful piece it's a big year for Jane Austen so uh, I know you'll be very busy but it's uh, it's delightful that you, you, you took the time to speak to us such a pleasure Stiganthia thank you do you have a favourite uh, just a second can I say one thing my name is actually it's Devaney Loza and I know you are a pronunciation guru that's Aha, why I say it Devaney Loza great Devin-y okay Loza. well we can correct that in your intro can't we can we? correct it in the intro or just leave it in at the end let's just leave this in just to correct ourselves. <laughs> you know, we, 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 we can admit fallibility so here. Yeah, we, we need to admit fallibility. <laughs> I Devin, feel like my reputation is on the line. Yeah. No, no, you, you need to admit fallibility, Thea. Uh, Devonie, thank you so much. Have a good day. Cheers. Devonie Loser. 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 We would never have got that. No. No. <laughs> How can we be expected to? Uh, go on. You were about to say your favourite Austin novel. <sighs> I don't know. I don't. Where do you stand on Austin? Well, so my mum was very keen to push Austin on on me and my sister. My sister immediately took to her. I struggled a little bit purely because I didn't really. Maybe I was too young. I don't know. But I, I whatever for whatever reason, I felt like it was a bit too much drawing rooms and ballrooms, and I couldn't relate to it. So maybe that's very modern of me. Uh, <clears throat> but. I actually remember really liking Mansfield Park and I wonder whether that was something to do with the wider context. I remember the allusions to Antigua and goings-on in Antigua and thinking this connects with the wider world. So I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not saying I was some 12-year-old political activist or something. But, but it felt like the what? Yeah, cause one of the knocks on her is that the Napoleonic Wars are going on. Yeah. And no one really knows about it. Well, exactly. And and certainly in um, is it in Emma the Napoleonic Wars? They've no persuasion. Persuasion. They've yeah. they've already ended when yeah. the, when the, the persuasion's the last starts. one. I quite yeah. like persuasion. Yeah, I did as well. But yeah, I don't know. There was something about the broader context and also the th- the sort of not being told what to think but yeah. knowing that there's some thinking that we need to do here yeah how interesting it's quite hard to read the whole oeuvre of a novelist a major novelist and because there's six novels and a little bit of marginalia or juvenilia mm. you can do that with Jane Austen yeah. it's kind of interesting in yeah. itself it's very hard to read all, I mean, you can just about read all of Dickens but it's quite an effort to do it whereas yeah. with Jane Austen you, can, you, you get a, a sense of com- completeness it's a kind of um, she's a kind of author who certainly lends herself to that kind of that binging I noticed that people call her Jane when, when a critic calls the, an Jane. author by the first name mm-hmm. i'm always a bit suspicious it tends to mean that they've they've they're too sli- close they're too close mm-hmm. and it happens with female and it's to do it with emily dickinson mm-hmm. if you read a lot of emily dickinson criticism she's emily mm-hmm. and she's jane in some criticism I think one of the quotes in, in this piece is jane and i don't know whether maybe it doesn't mean anything maybe but it just seems a way you slightly diminish someone by mm-hmm. by calling them by their first name in a critical work, do you think that's mm. fair or done? I think it's just a, it's a it's a way of owning, isn't it? Of of of, of yeah. um, flying the flag for that 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 closeness that you have. You wouldn't call Beckett Samuel. No, Sam. Yeah, we wouldn't call him Sam. <laughs> I wouldn't have thought. Well, let's move on to that. From an icon of Augustan literature to an icon of modern literature, Samuel Beckett. David Wheatley has reviewed the fourth and final volume of Beckett's letters, which cover the period of 1966 to 1989. In them, we discover Beckett the wanderer and holiday maker, which is quite an unsettling thought. Beckett the Nobel Prize winner in 1969 and Beckett the theatrical grandee. Time spent in the theatre, he said, was the opposite of real work. The letters take us up to his death, ending in November 1989, with one to Michael Kubel saying, I am ill and cannot help. Forgive, so go ahead without me. 
we can't go on, we'll go on, as someone once nearly said. And David Wheatley has reviewed the letters, joins us now. David, how are you? All right, thank you. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. This is a, it's a period in these letters which sound like fascinating things and kind of beautiful things as well. But Beckett at this point is becoming a bit of a celebrity by the time these letters start. How did that affect him and his work, do you think? And does that come across in, in the letters he's writing? Well, I was thinking of a, a phrase from later on in Yeats's life when he referred to the finished man among his enemies. But by contrast, I think in uh, the, the later stretches of Beckett's life, were one to pick up volume four without having read volume one in particular, you could quite easily get the sense that this was a man who had no enemies, who was just unbelievably ironic and peaceful and uh, beloved by all he ever encountered. And how and, and cause does that affect someone whose stock in trade is, is absurdism and bleakness and darkness and, and a recognition of some of the sort of futility inherent in humanity? How does being happy uh, affect him? Well, uh, one phrase that I had singled out from these later letters, I think it's in a letter to Harold Pinter, is enough about my so-called despair. Now, um, you may have noticed that simultaneously with Volume 4, there is a volume of his letters to Barney Rossish that has come out, Dear Mr. Beckett, and um, that that volume leans quite heavily on that period of uh, the theatre of the absurd from the 1960s, with many, many people coming up to say that the, the point of Beckett's writing was that, in fact, life is just unbearable, awful, that we should kill ourselves now. Um, this this is one strand, an honourable strand of Beckett criticism, but certainly not reflected by the, the wider stretch of reading. Uh, by my calculation, 3,179 pages, of which the current volume is one quarter. What did he make of the Nobel Prize? Because, I mean, it's financially very, very nice. And um, we might get to the obvious question that what he would have made of Bob Dylan winning it 50 years later or 60 years later. But what did he make of it himself, first of all? Um, I think what he made of it on the most literal level was a holiday opportunity. <laughs> um, I, each, each year of these uh, volumes has very helpful chronology. I noticed that in the mid-1970s, he's, he was going down to Morocco or Tunisia up to three times a year. And uh, since the, the news of the prize found him in North Africa, he decided to make a six-week holiday of it. In fact, uh, he, he had a stopping over in Portugal on the way home, too. And, well, at this point, I think that dialectic of public versus private Beckett that was already quite well established after Godot really begins to kick in with the sense of having to build this protective wall between him and uh, the public clamouring for his opinions and everything. But um, I think he was also able to put this dialectic of public and private to very good and self-protective use. So he was quite protective of his of his legacy, was he? I mean, there, there are a number of letters in this collection um, addressed to and, and from academics. He certainly ended up being very shrewd about his legacy. He was very lucky in the choice of people who uh, made a pass to his door, but also shrewd too. Um, this volume contains correspondence with people such as Christopher Ricks and James Nelson. James Nelson organises uh, a little exhibition about him in the University of Reading and strikes up a conversation under a kind of, uh, well, enduring friendship that culminates in the biography and also uh, culminates in the, the wonderful archive of Beckham material at the University of Reading. And while he would always do the, the very performative thing of denying 
being an intellectual or an academic and not really being able to talk about his work or philosophy, he was very, very patient and willing to indulge these people. Was he not? I mean, what sort of correspondent was he uh, overall? Him was he was he warm and? You, you refer later on to the black diamonds of pessimism within the letters, but is your overall impression of of someone who is who is patient and warm and enjoying the the act of correspondence? Very much so. I I think that the daily routine of correspondence maybe provided him with the useful pleasures of distraction that nowadays one might associate with just um, nipping onto the internet for a while before you start writing. And uh, the the complaints about correspondence are, if anything, drowned out by the complaints that bob up when uh, there are threats of postal strikes. And he becomes, I think, quite itchy at the prospect of not being able to receive all of these terrible letters asking him for the true meaning of waiting for Godot. He, I, I can only assume he did not answer every single individual illiterate letter he received, but he did very, very conscientiously answer so many of these things. I imagine sometimes his, his economy was, was the clearest sign of his feelings. Um, there's the, the shortest letter, which is just no in, in response to it. No, that does form part of a pattern that... I, well, the statistical breakdown of Volume 4 bears this out, that although the period covered by Volume 4 contains, in fact, it yields the largest amount of letters, uh, they are also statistically the, the shortest letters because they do tend to be uh, very brief answers to people asking you to do things. He is unwilling or unable to perform. Uh, you make the point which we've discussed on this podcast, and it keeps coming back. We've got another piece, I think, in next week's paper about letter writing among the poets, that the era of the literary letter writer is coming to an end and you say that remarkable and epic achievement that this book has been the collection may function as a memorial twice over and do you get the sense of that that we've got the end of an era in terms of letters and and there is nothing really coming along to replace it you know are we going to be looking at zadie smith's facebook posts uh, uh, in contrast well i i hope i'm wrong about that i am aware of uh, university archive having acquired the rights to seamus Hedy's hard drive from his computer uh, what that might yield up I don't know um, I, I would like to believe there are more great correspondences to come down the line uh, but obviously technology will have uh, a damaging effect on these Well because ultimately, I mean is this fair do you think that the act of letter writing even though it could be curt and, and peremptory sometimes, it is a, it's a substantial difference to the act of sending off an email or something electronic, by putting pen to paper, you're giving more of yourself? Or is this just... I mean, I just wonder whether this is sort of dewy-eyed romanticism on my part, and actually it's more or less the same thing. I I think the elaborate courtesies of correspondence uh, suited Beckett very well. I mentioned Volume 1 before as quite a contrast to Volume 4. Beckett was an angry young man in Volume 1 and was pouring out these very angry diatribes, principally to Thomas McGreevy. But I think he found the codes of politeness, which he channeled into the active correspondence so effectively and at such length, I think he found them very useful ways of diffusing that anger that had, well, bogged him down in, in his younger days so much. And there, I think, is another aspect of the buffer zone between the, the man answering his letters and then the secret private artist who is continuing to produce work with such uh, diligence and distinction all the way up to the late 1980s. Mm, you draw a comparison with, um, with the internet and, and letter writing as a distraction versus the modern distraction of the internet. And the, the, sad, the sad thing is, is that the internet is, is, a, is a passive thing. You know, you, you, if only one could be distracted into another form of writing. 
it seems almost too good to be true. Yes, but I suppose another aspect of this that I was struck by uh, in Volume 4, um, that the very well-established resistance of Beck to having his work tampered with or crossing genres, but increasingly one finds that breaks down. And he becomes very interested with, uh, for instance, the chance to work in television. And uh, some of those very late plays begin to cross over actors who put suggestions to him for adaptations. And since his death, so much work has been done in all kinds of new genres, video art in particular. And while the terrible cliche of of Shakespeare being alive today and writing for EastEnders comes to mind. <laughs> I I don't think that a Beckett who was alive today would merely have a Luddite aversion to the internet. While I'm sure he would engage with it warily, uh, the pattern of his writing all through his life was one of, of fascination with new technologies. Crapsbass tape, for instance, if you remember, yeah. mm-hmm. that in the future, because the man in the 1950s with the archive of tape recordings, well, he couldn't have had those tape recordings dating back so Beckett had to project it on into the future. So, um, well, you can imagine he wrote Facebook-based version of Crap's Last Tape. <laughs> well, I can just imagine Beckett on Twitter. You can imagine <laughs> him sort of saying no on Twitter and it being retweeted sort of 20,000 times by p- virtue-signalling show-offs who wanted to show that they understood what he was saying. Well, uh, since you mentioned that, a character who has achieved a degree of celebrity on Twitter is uh, Theodora Dordo, um, his, oh, yeah. uh, who's famous for saying no to everything on Twitter. <laughs> and in fact, Adorno pops up in Volume 4. Um, Beckett, I think, was flattered by the attention he was getting from this great critic, but found him ever so slightly difficult and maybe slightly humourless. That comes through as well. But if Adorno could be on Twitter, well, then why, why not Beckett? Beckett? <laughs> uh, David, thank you so much uh, for doing the piece. I think, I think what comes across uh, and talking to you even more so that... This is a lovely book. And we, you know, it was the most recommended book in our books of the year at the end of last year as well. There's a sense that this is a, it's a fine sort of testament to, to, to the end of the life of Beckett. Well, I, I feel a bit like um, Alexander the Great sitting down by the waters of the Ganges, crying that there's no, no new world to conquer yet because we haven't found out about Australia. I just hope someone finds a few more letters down the back of a sofa and <laughs> gives us uh, another volume at some point yeah, in the future. That would be great. David, yeah. thank you so much. Thank you very much. I just wonder, are there any figures of Beckett standing writing today, Thea, whose letters you would want to see? Of his standing is the sticking point, yeah, really. Yeah. Because you can almost, you can imagine that the, there, are, there are letters by certain people who you would like to read because of the events, the people they meet, the anecdotal value. But for the the philosophical insight or, or you know, the what, what are they called? The black uh, the black diamonds of pessimism. Yeah. Where, who, yeah, I can't... But even, I can't even think. that, I, mean, I was thinking about that about Nabokov as well, who was obviously alive mm. at, at the same point. Uh, There's a point at which... Nabokov and Beckett were alive and you'd be fascinated to hear their thoughts. Who are the Nabokov and Beckett of today, if at all? I mean, does that exist? I mean, is it only because you get a sort of patina of greatness by your death and, and the distance that death brings? It just doesn't feel that... I know all golden age is always in the past, but I'm just not sure that there are figures like that mm. that are writing that, that are of equal standing. I don't know. I think I'd probably agree with you, but it's it's one of those things that you sort of can't allow yourself to think about too much because no, it, it, it's kind it of a feels a bit like it also feels a bit like standing on a on the edge of a precipice. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm just it's just it just feels it just feels odd that I don't know that. Nabokov, whose letters? Whose letters now? Would you? Would you be like you you should really yeah. read that they're important literary? Yeah. I mean. Philip, maybe, maybe maybe someone like Tom Stoppard. Tom Stoppard, maybe Philip Roth, maybe yeah. you know, sort of a great Elena Ferrante, 
Maybe. Well, we have some of hers, of course, in the Frantumaglia, that yeah. recent collection, and, and those are particularly interesting because you get her interactions with people who are adapting her work, and those are often, I think, the most interesting things. So, yeah, the, when, when Samuel Beckett got back to someone who was making an inquiry about adapting one of the, his things and, and just said no, yeah. you know, <laughs> instead of doing that, Elena Ferrante really engages yeah, with, yeah, with the I idea. Hope, yeah, and... I can imagine that. <laughs> if you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. <laughs> um, we should move on. Uh, talking of literary titans, in fact, we move to a memoir called Avid Reader by Robert Gottlieb, one of the major editorial figures of the 20th century. Gottlieb was the editor-in-chief at The New Yorker between 1982 and 1997 and of two major publishing houses, Simon & Schuster and Knopf, whence he has returned. In his time, he has edited a bristlingly impressive list of writers, including Anthony Burgess, John Cheever, Don DeLillo, Margaret Drabble, Tony Morrison, Doris Lessing, John le Carre, Salman Rushdie and V.S. Naipaul. Ironically for an editor, his memoir is a lengthy, rambling, sprawling affair that by the sounds of it needed a touch of the blue pencil. J. Michael Lennon has given it a respectful but not uncritical review for us and joins Thea and me now. Michael, how are you? I'm good, how are you? Very good. Uh, One question for you. We were just talking about whether there's who are the significant literary figures of today comparable to Nabokov and, and, and Beckett. Have you got any names you'd throw into our hat, you know, people whose letters you'd want to read working today? Well, Cormac McCarthy would be right at the top of my list. Yeah, Don DeLillo, 
DeLillo, uh, McCarthy. Um, I think it's it's time to start collecting the letters of Dave Eggers, too. I think he's going to be one of the greats. Yeah, that's a good yeah. And I imagine he um, you got to imagine his correspondence in a variety of technological forms would be quite playful and quite interesting. Uh, yes, absolutely, absolutely. McCarthy, though, I think is uh, is going to be one of the titans, and he's still producing. Where we've been waiting for a year or two now for uh, this this new novel of his, The Passenger, to come out, and it keeps being delayed and delayed. Does I it? think it's Proustian sort of he's uh, yeah. putting it off while he's still steaming along. I think Blood Meridian's arguably in the top three books of the twentieth century. Yes, yes, it's a terrific book. Um, it's it's painful to read it. Yeah. Uh, the, the the blood the blood just flows through the gutters uh, of, of of the book. It's very painful, but it's a book that one can never forget. Yeah, I think that's right. Well, let's let's talk about this uh, the Gottlieb book. The writer editor relationship, I think, is a generally fascinating one. Who are the writers that I, I gave a long list then of pretty big names? Who are the writers that made the most impression on Gottlieb and therefore his memoir? Who are the writers that you come away from this feeling that you 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 know more about? Uh, well, uh, Jean Le Carr uh, is one. Also, uh, Tony Morrison, uh, Robert Caro uh, yeah. is another one. He's, uh, that continues. That's a continuum. That's been going on for 40 years. I suppose it's one of the longest editor-author relationships uh, one can point to in literature. Uh, it's Caro's last volume. The fifth volume is still in the works, and there is uh, Bob Gottlieb still working with him, fighting over every single summer and Every cut, um, Carol writes long, and uh, Gottlieb has to cut him back. He has a he has a paperweight on his desk that says, "Give the reader a break." In other words, partner with the reader. Don't don't overexplain to the reader all the time, uh, so the reader doesn't get bored. And uh, that that appears to be where where Carol's lack is. People listening might not know they might not work in the book business, and I imagine most of them don't. And so they probably want to know how important is a good editor to a, a writer's critical success or even commercial success how important is it how important is it to have this editor like bob Gottlieb? he's indispensable he's been the indispensable editor for for, for so many years for so many writers uh, he's had nobel prize winners man booker a national book award you name the the prizes you know a host of pulitzers and uh they have most of them paid tribute with him, and most of them have stuck with him some didn't delillo left him which I've always wondered, and I've wondered why, and I'd like to ask a little of that question someday. But most of his other writers have stuck with him, and they find he has a uh, an uncanny ability to find the narrative arc of a story, to know when to pinch it off, when to expand it, and when not to. And he does it with nudges. I mean, he's a line editor, uh, and he'll do line editing, but a lot of his work is just saying, you know, this needs to be bulked up at the end. Uh, it's uh, it's it's it needs it's too loose and and runny, and he can give that kind of advice. He knows what kind of advice to give to writers, whether he needs to fix broken sentences or whether he has to uh, suggest that the novel really ended halfway through the manuscript, as he told one of his famous uh, uh, writers. And and uh, the writer said, you know, you're right. I felt the last half I didn't really need to write. That's an editor of genius. And he certainly is, uh, you know, one of the great editors of all time. There's no doubt about it. Just to stick with editing for a second, Tony Tony um, Morrison makes an interesting point. She says, I never write with Bob in mind. That would be very bad for me. He isn't the ideal reader for the product, but he is the ideal editor for it. I think that gets to the nub of, of what it is to be an editor. Yes, very good. Very apt quote. Extremely, extremely sharp. Yes, absolutely. They're the same age, and they work together very well. And uh, 
he convinced her to give up her editing job. She was an editor herself at Random House for many years uh, to make a living. And then when her book started to click, he said, look, you've got to get out of this work. You need to write. Well, you know, that shows that he puts the writer first. The editor he always sees as a subsidiary a character, uh, however essential he may be to the final product. He knows talent when he sees it. How would you how would you say the role his role? I mean, not specifically for him, but the role of the editor in in the publishing world. How would you say that's changed? Because he's he's been in it since the nineteen fifties when he started at Simon and Schuster. So it's a very different world now. Do you, do you yes, get much a of a sense of that change in, in his book? Yes. Well, he's still the old fashioned editor. Mm. Uh, he still takes home hard copy and lays up in bed with a pencil, and uh, and reads fast and so forth. Uh, many other editors are much more executive these days. They expect that their the uh, their mentors and MFA programs, their agents and their uh, their friends are going to churn in perfect copy, and there will be very little to do except uh, you know decide on the publicity campaign and so forth, and maybe some light editing. But you know there are many enclaves of uh, uh, in publishing where the old-fashioned stuff still goes on. I know my editor at Simon and Schuster, Robert Bender. You know, uh, I said, "Should I send you an electronic copy?" He goes, "Oh no, no, no! Get a big box and mail me the whole manuscript <laughs> of your biography of Mailer." And I did, and um, I got it back with you know in, in the same big box. And so he's an old-fashioned guy in the Gottlieb tradition, and there's still a lot of those folks in the business. And did uh, your editor get back to you as quickly as Robert Gottlieb gets back to his people? That's his That's his sort of his signature, fast, isn't it, the fast, speed? Pretty fast. I gave him, I think, 400,000 words, and he got it back to me in about a month. <laughs> 400,000 words? Yeah, that was the first draft, yeah. Uh, well, let's talk about Mailer briefly, because we'll talk about Gottlieb, the writer, very briefly at the end, but, you know, as his biographer, what was his relationship like with his editors? Like, Mailer? Yeah, Mailer, know, knowing a little bit about the man and his books, it can't have been a straightforward one. Um, well, you know, I did some, I edited some of Mailer's works myself, and uh, Norman always asked for opinions, and um, um, but he, he often resisted it. He only when, when the... Um, his wife, his friends, his editors, uh, his agent, everybody told him that something needed to be shortened or expanded or fixed up. Would he really listen? Uh, he listened very carefully. And, and as uh, Jason Epstein, another great editor, who was Mailer's editor, said, Norman's always very polite. He always asks me questions about this and that. And then he goes off and ignores me completely. <laughs> I don't think that's exactly true. Mailer would listen to advice. And he was especially interested when someone would point out a flaw in some run of his sentences. He had a great ear for the beat of sentences. And when they didn't sound right, when there was something there was something broken in them, he would listen. And uh, he had a wonderful copy editor named Veronica Winholz, who edited a lot of his books. And she said, I never tried to fool around with his philosophy. She said, I just tried to make his sentences flow a little bit better. And he always listened to that. And presumably part of the pleasure of, of certain, some, I'm thinking of a book, some of his books, the length and the scale and the, and the ambition are part of the, the fun of them. Uh, and I suppose if you were to cut too much that, you know, even a book like Harlot's Ghost, which I think is one of the great spy books, really, um, it would have, yeah. you could have made it tighter, I'm sure. And you could have cut yeah. some of the musings about the id and all that stuff that he made a like doing. But... Part of the pleasure of Mailer is the slightly excessive nature of the prose. Yes, yes, yes absolutely. I mean, uh, I love it when he goes off on long excursions like that. He never knows if he's going to be able to find his way back. But some of the excursions are, are some of the great passages in his book. But, you know, they're, they kind of, uh, they're excrescences. I mean, you could lop them off in the, for the sake of having a more calmly narrative that flowed beautifully and 
no extra words, you know, a great Gatsby kind of a book or a Scarlet Letter. But but Norman always felt that, you know, uh, you may discover a new avenue in those excursions, and they were wonderful. I, and I think it's because of some of the great European novelists he read, like Stendhal and, and Dostoevsky, who were willing to uh, take those kind of chances that, that he wanted to do the same thing. And Sometimes it led to uh, disaster, but not always. Sometimes it really worked. Yeah, Baggy Monsters is what Henry James referred to, the sort of 19th yeah. century uh, no novels. And you see that a bit with Mailer. Well, let's talk about Gottlieb's book, because you yeah. it's fair to say you said it's too baggy, too platitudinous. Mm -hmm. You mentioned throwing the book across the room when Gottlieb <laughs> describes someone as having a big personality, a big wardrobe and an even bigger heart. Why did someone not edit this book better? I, I really don't know. I mean, he has... A number of people, you know, Jonathan Galassi and uh, Blake Bailey and all these folks that he knows that are, that are in the book business. And um, I, th I think that he had so many, he, he's had such a long career, he had so many people that he had to pay tribute to, give accolades to, that that got in the way of making the book more about the relationship between editor and writer and the, the great stories of some of the, and he tells some great stories about some of his authors, uh, you know, about Catch-22 and how he came up with the title of that. Stuff like that is wonderful. But then, you know, you go on for pages and pages where he's giving sales figures and blurbs and stuff like that. And, and you know, this gal in, in uh, Miami Beach is a real estate agent. And I guess she must have got him a great deal that she got her, <laughs> she got into the book somehow. And, I, you know, it's, uh, that should have come out. Yeah. I, think, I think you're right to point people in the direction of that Paris Review interview instead on the art of the editor. Isn't it wonderful? It is. Well, it's interspersed, isn't it, with um, with these notes. That's where I found that, that Morrison line. Um, yeah. Interspersed yes. oh, with, it's, with it's so you really get a feel for the relationship. It's a terrific interview. It's, it's, it's a, you know, kind of a breakthrough the way they did it. He's got six or seven writers that he worked with and they all give comments and he gives comments back and they're all interleaved together brilliantly. Mm. And you get at the end and you feel like you've been in one of the most the most fabulous dinner parties of literary <laughs> figures you've ever been to. Well, Michael, thank you so much for joining us. And thanks. For, I mean, I actually found that this piece, you've packed a lot of those anecdotes in, in, in and uh, I think it's kind of, also, it's kind of, I'm kind of charmed by the fact this great editor, a man who rows with his authors to get them to shut up and, and, and prune back, has been allowed to just bang on at inordinate length. There's something kind of charming about that. And I think you capture that in the, in the review. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. You a Mailer fan, do you? Not particularly. No, I, I, do you know what? <laughs> you can get that from my silence. Do you know what? I'm <clears> not <throat> stunned to hear that because I, you don't strike me. I, I think there's a lot of ridiculousness. There's a, there's a lot of macho ridiculousness in Mailer, which I read as a young man and was slightly drawn to. But I think if you're not a young man reading it, I think you would you would think it's just ridiculous rather than sort of pleasurably ridiculous. Hmm. I think that's possibly a fair point. There's some great stuff. I mean, I, 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 I once reviewed for the TLS a long time ago. He's, he did a book about Hitler's birth which and an early childhood, which is just terrible. But part of the Did you review it favourably? No. You were able to not? I was okay. able to, to, to... Distance yourself. Yeah, he kept... Yeah, I, I was... And also actually said in the review that basically failure is part of mailer. You kind of mm. get that with... with failure mailer. With, yeah, they half rhyme away from failure, I think I said. <laughs> But you kind of get that with what Michael was saying there, that sometimes it didn't work, but part of the pleasure was to find out if it might work. And, mm. and, and you do get that, uh, I think, with him. But it's a fascinating guy. And I, that Paris Review thing is cool, isn't it? It is. And it's it's so interesting to read about, I find anyway, but then I pro probably would, the, um, the writer-editor relationship. <laughs> the writer-editor relationship really, really does interest me. And when I was reading this, there's that bit where he's um, we're learning about um, Robert Caro's book and how it needs to be cut so, so drastically. 
Um, and, it, and then it makes you think of, you know, James Elroy and the, 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 the writing that can come out of that, that tough editor stance. Do you think, is, that, is, that what got, is that what produced Elroy? Well, no, well, so James Elroy, again, in the Paris Review in an interview, said basically that his, I think it was LA Confidential, yeah, it was LA Confidential, his editor wanted him to lose 100 pages. And so he just took out his pencil and started cutting words, cutting words, really? cutting words, and that is how his, his telegraphic style was And that was became born. American tabloid. Yeah. Because what's fascinating about LA Confidential is it's, there's a bit of it... It's not entire. It, it, it's not so stylized. It doesn't it, take it so far, no. and then you get to the cold six thousand yeah. when it when it, it's too. It's gone no, too I love cold six thousand. <laughs> now the books after, which I still read quite a lot, are not good. It didn't work with Blood of Rover, which is the third one in the series, and it's not worked in Perfidia, which is the giant prequel to it all. But I think Cold Six Thousand is almost better. It's not quite better than American Tabloid, but it's on a par, isn't it? Do you not think? I don't know. No. You're getting into an area of... of, of uh, I, I love, can tell yeah. you're far more passionate yeah, than I. I love James I just, I just, yeah, I just really find, find it fascinating how a how style can be, can be born from this this discussion. Yeah, I think And I love the idea of Robert Gottlieb sitting on the floor eating tuna mayonnaise sandwiches with uh, John le Carré and John le Carré saying uh, that he would like a clause to be worked into his contract that um, Gottlieb had to take him out for fancy meals thereafter. Enough enough tuna sandwiches. Yeah, it's a great detail. (laughs) That's almost all we have time for this week. Let me thank on behalf of Thea and me, J. Michael Lennon, David Wheatley and Stone Cold Jane Austen, (laughs) Devaney Loza. Please do subscribe to this podcast on iTunes wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back every week with thoughts on big pieces in the TLS and important cultural and artistic issues. This week's paper is now on sale with the pieces we've been discussing, plus Catriona Kelly on the dark history of the Bolshoi, Jackie McCarrick on Edward Bond and David Mamet, Felipe Fernandez Armesto on writing about the Spanish Civil War, Lucy Munro on a rediscovered portrait of Beaumont, and Sheng Yun on the astonishing education system of China. You can visit our website ved-tls.co.uk to read it all and learn more about our print and digital subscriptions and do come back daily to the site for new original pieces from TLS writers including Alan Brown John on the poetry of Jim Jarmusch Claire Chambers on the fraught ethics of marriage and Benjamin Markovitz who you mentioned earlier who thinks Ulysses is overrated as well as the old man in the sea and loves Fanny Price he loves Fanny Price uh, views on Ulysses being overrated dear? Um, I wouldn't say it was overrated no, no. Seems possibly the old man in the sea I would say is overrated yeah, I think this is another one of those. Um... It's a male-female thing, isn't it? <laughs> Although yeah. I do, I do love Hemingway. Apart from, do you like uh, *Sun Also Rises*? Uh, yeah. See, I think that's a great novel. I think it's a, one of the one of the great. Novels. I think this is the only one of Hemingway that I would say, mm, yes, possibly overrated. Yeah, that's probably right. I, I don't think you can overrate *Ulysses* because it's kind of so. It stands so alone as just a, it as yeah, well, and it's just a piece possibly. of genius. I mean, it's you unquestionably like overrating the Iliad. Or yeah, exactly. It's so unquestionably <laughs> a work of genius, isn't it? Yes. But Benjamin Markovitz doesn't like it. Um, follow us on Twitter. Do like us on Facebook, and please do review us on iTunes. And join us next week when Thea and I are going to be taking on how to save capitalism. All in a, all in a day's work. Oh, superheroes <laughs> that we are. Until then, from Thea and from me, goodbye. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.